Before we get into today's chat, we'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional owners and custodians of the land on which we record this podcast today, the peoples of the Kulin Nation. As always, we pay our respects to their elders past and present. When we talk about gender, a lot of people are so worried. So if you had a conversation with your kid and they asked you some question about gender and you actually couldn't answer them, what a powerful opportunity to say, you know what? I actually have the same question. I don't know. or I'm going to find out. Welcome to Talking in Common, a podcast of all things lifestyle, family, relationships, well-being, kids and culture. This is not a how-to, but an insight into the lives of ourselves and others and how we all manage to get by. Hosted by myself, Kate Gadinsky, and my co-host, Sophie Panton. Take a listen and let's find out what we all have in common. Big shout out to today's episode sponsor, Help at Hand, bringing you life-saving education and information for your tiny humans. We are back after being MIA. Yeah, good point. We've had a little break, guys. Sorry. Forgot to tell you. (laughs) In our heads, we told you. Life gets in the way of recording a podcast sometimes, doesn't it, my love? It certainly does. We just had to take a break for a minute and recoup on life and ideas and guest episodes and recording times, didn't we? We did, and we have come back today with a epic episode, I think. Mm, I agree. Really, really enjoyed this chat. In fact, I think you just said this was one of the most interesting chats that we've had to date. Yes. Look, I'm going to say we can't have favorites. There are a few interesting ones that we've had. They're all freaking interesting. They're all interesting, I mean. (laughs) You know that? No. All of our chats I find, personally, I find interesting, but I have to say this has probably been one of my favourites and one of the most interesting that we have had. We've just gone and done a 360, babe. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think it's very topical. I mean, before we get into it a little bit, let's start with what we have in common. Mm. It would be rude not to. Do you know what I think we have in common? Mm -hmm. Tell me, because I feel like I haven't seen you for three years, so (laughs) I don't don't even know what you've got. (laughs) I don't know if we've got this in common, but I feel like this is the first time in a good year at least that we have Mm. literally been together with no kids like because I've either had a baby in my tummy or you've had a baby in your tummy or you've had a baby here or I've had a baby here or we've had kids here there's no babies in tummies yeah there's no babies here there's no kids here it's just you and me how do you know there's no babies in tummies well look I was assuming I was making an assumption and as we talk about actually in this episode we shouldn't you know, assume, we shouldn't assume although some assumptions are good is there a baby in your tummy <sighs> oh, not today <laughs> anyway but I feel like yeah I feel like it's been a long time since it's just been you and I in the room yeah I agree what the hell are we sitting here doing this for <laughs> yeah gallivanting I was gonna say after this we should go and have a wine somewhere yeah totally so we've got some sunshine for a change, which is nice. If anyone else lives in Victoria, we've just had this random week of like winter again in the middle of spring and summer and it's, uh, you know, classic, not classic, actually not classic. I was going to say classic Melbourne weather. No, 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 it's not. It's climate change at its finest. It's very scary. We should do an episode on it, but watch this space. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, today's episode is with a great 
guest, Adrian Harper-Pike, and we talk all about gender identity, gender labels, aware parenting. Raising our children to be their authentic selves. And I think it's very topical, like particularly with the gender topic, like it's such an ambiguous topic. I think the more that we speak about it with each other and the more that we spoke to Adrian about it, like it's a lot more clear than we think really. You know, all these new labels, gender fluidity and non-binary and all these new terms that have kind of come into our language that have really baffled a lot of people and become really confusing like it just doesn't really need to be that confusing and I think as Adrian points out quite a bit is it's all about yes educating yourself but asking a question if you're unsure ask a question like you, you cannot ask the wrong question you Absolutely. can make the wrong assumption and you can say the wrong thing but you're better off to ask a question get the right answer and educate yourself. So she told us that, but she also had a lot of great other things that she shared with us. So this is definitely a good episode if you're in the mood to learn something because I certainly did. Yeah, likewise. Even just the simple things like, you know, the difference between sex and gender and how there is a difference yeah. and also being vulnerable and asking questions is the best way to approach someone or something that you potentially feel a little bit undereducated about or a little bit uncomfortable about it's important that we all sort of rewire our thinking a little bit and retrain our brains in that way, not to just assume anything about anyone and to ask a question. And, you know, as we spoke to her about as well, like language is such a powerful tool mm. for making people feel comfortable and understood and respected. And it was really nice to learn some ways on how to use language to do that. I think the problem is now is where everyone is so afraid to say the wrong thing you know, rather than actually getting educated and learning more, people just tend to not say anything and then they feel uncomfortable and, you know, it's your own insecurity really when you could just learn and ask a mm. question. So let's intro her. Well, Adrian Harper-Pike is a cisgender queer parent with a non-binary partner and five-year-old twins. She's always had a strong desire to create ripples of change and healing within her community. This desire is centered in her values of social justice, human rights, and equality. She also explains in this episode that this drive is more paramount than ever now that she has children of her own to guide through this world. She's absolutely committed to providing safe and inclusive communities that recognize diversity and provide culturally and linguistically accessible services. She has a master's degree in social work with her training and education focused on bilingual, bicultural models of practice in the deaf, hard of hearing and deaf blind communities with a focus on intersectionality, sexuality and gender diversity. She's worked closely with Deafblind Australia on the creation of information, resources and workshops and is also now an aware parenting instructor. Here's Adrian. Adrian, this has been a long time coming. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you? Oh, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. I'm glad that we, you know, trusted the timing and we have persisted and that we're here today. I'm doing good. That's good. Given the conversation that we're going to have, it's appropriate to start by asking you your pronouns. Yeah, great. Thank you for that. So 
I go by she, her pronouns, sometimes they, them, not super fast, which is a privilege in and of itself that I don't mind either way. A little bit about my family is that I have twins who are five years old and one of them goes by she, her pronouns and the other one goes by he and she pronouns. And my partner is non-binary and goes by they. Mm, Yeah, we're super interested to learn about how you raise your children with gender identity and stuff like that, particularly that they're young and there's so many questions and so much to learn, I think, you know, in in a world that we all know is so gendered and have that conversation. But we would really love to just start with your personal story. We know a little bit about your background because you've already generously shared a little bit about yourself with us, but we want to find out a bit more about what makes you you and also what drives you to do what you do. Well, I'll try to give you the annotated version. Um, so I am from the States. I currently live in Melbourne, well, near Melbourne. I've been here for about 10 years. But in the States, I spent the first 20 so years of my life in the Midwest. And I don't know how familiar you are with America, but I'm from an area that is also known as the Bible Belt. So it's quite conservative didn't have a lot of exposure to people who might have other identities outside of mine or, you know, sort of a varied few. And I never really felt connected to the place where I grew up. I felt quite othered in a lot of ways, and I didn't really understand what that was for you know, most of my childhood and adolescence and sort of getting into my late teens, early 20s and moving through all of that was quite significant for me. I really knew from a young age, like probably like grade six or seven, that I wanted to have a really different life than what I was in. And my mom was always so amazing at talking about, well, when you go to university, when you do this, when you do that, and like really embedding that into the narrative that I had for myself. So I got a scholarship and I had to do this like five-year program from year seven to year, what, 11, and do all of these things in order to then have my uni paid for. (laughs) I studied American Sign Language you know, sign language comes really easily to me. Spoken languages do not. They they don't work with my neurotype, um, but sign language works really well for me. And what I realized through the program, which was an incredible program, is that actually I, an interpreting position, an interpreting role is really specific as it should be. It's really ruled by a set of rules and a set of specific, I guess, code of ethics that you need to be in. And you're really within a certain role as the interpreter, right? So you're the conduit of language. And I found that that was too constricting for me. I would be, you know, put in situations where I was seeing just injustice and, you know, people not getting the information because the people in the room with the privilege, right, with who the hearing people not giving the full information. So I just was like, that doesn't suit me. And all the while, on my personal journey, I'm sort of working out who I am, how do I fit in the world and becoming into myself. And so I sort of thought, I've always been really sort of strong in my beliefs around social justice. Well, I'm going to study social work. So that was a university called Gallaudet, which is a primarily deaf university. So my degree focused on social work with deaf, hard of hearing and deaf blind people. I feel very privileged to be able to work within that space and to have been invited and to learn and to really be part of a world that's right next to all of us. We live next to deaf people. We live next to deaf blind people. But I think most people, unless they had someone in their family or were really intentionally in that space, they might not just realize how prevalent sensory loss is and what that means for the people around them. Absolutely. At a young age, what was it that made you realize that you did want to 
push against the norm or, you know, the constraints of your environment? I'm not sure. So as I grew up and I developed and understood this really strong queer identity that I have and this neurodivergent mind that I have and the way that I navigate the world, I think that what that meant for me as a young person before I had language for any of those experiences was that I felt really different. I didn't understand a a lot of why things happened. I didn't understand why this person would be treated this way when they're a person just like the one next to them. So I think I sort of was very much like, well, why wouldn't we all have access to things? You know, like it just never made sense to me. You know, I think my mom also planted a lot of those seeds, even though she's very much part of this Midwestern culture. You know, she was quite progressive in pushing back against, you know, some of the things that our larger family context would say or do or believe in. And even though she was like the, you know, the one solo voice against a chorus of many, because it was a really important voice, I think that was also really helpful. So the culmination of those things. So Adrian, can we start with something really simple here? We'd love your thoughts and explanation of gender identity and the difference of this to your sexuality for example, how gender can be looked at as a social construct? I guess as a starter, it would be sort of good to notice and acknowledge that often people use those terms interchangeably, so sexuality and gender, when they are in fact quite different. Okay, so if we look at a person and say a person is born, right? And they are there are sex characteristics, right? So they're sex assigned at birth. So that's like the, the, the plumbing they have essentially, right? And there's so many different levels of sex characteristics, right? But we would, a doctor might do a visual look and go, oh, you've got this part, that means you're this. Oh, you've got that part, that means you're this. But really what we're noticing and seeing by someone's genitals, for example, is the sex that they are, right? That's different to sexuality. So then when that person they get a bit older and they think, oh, does my body match the way I feel? Does it match with the plumbing that I have? But this doctor told me that I'm a girl, right? Everyone tells me I'm a girl. Does that actually feel right for me? And so that's when we sort of think about the way that we connect to and identify with our body, right? So do we feel this way or do we feel a different way? That's the gender part, right? So how we relate to who we are in our body and what our society tells us gender is, right? The expectations of sort of binary gender so binary meaning two so male and female is typically when we have when you hear conversations or you hear on the radio or you read books or you watch tv or you know for the most part people sort of look at gender in you're either male or you're female but the reality is is that we know that people come in all different ways and that you can be any version of anything right so gender can look really different for anyone so when we look beyond male and female it could look like so many things like you you know you might feel like you're a bit male and a bit female, you might not feel like any of them. You might, you know, it might change for you every day. So really gender is how we relate to what our culture tells us these particular types of gender are. Mm, it does make sense. Yeah. I think the biggest misconception from from my experience in society and general conversation is exactly that, the difference between sex and gender. Yes. And people just can't understand that if you're born with a certain plumbing, as you say, then that's just what you are. If you're born with a penis, you're a man. Whereas the difference is the identity, how people feel. And I think people just find it really hard to understand the difference between those two things. How do we help people understand that there's a difference? I think it's layers, right? Because I think that the way that we are raised within our culture and our society, the way we're socialized 
embeds these ideas of what it means to be a girl or what it means to be a boy, mm-hmm. right? And it does it from the time you're pregnant, right? Like, I mean, people have Absolutely. gender reveal parties where they say like, oh, my child has a penis, I'm having a boy. And then they have a party to celebrate the fact that their child has a penis is essentially what they're doing, mm. right? But we don't yeah, actually know. Body. <laughs> body. Like, we don't know if that person's going to grow up and feel like a boy, right? They're going to be told that they're a boy. Is that going to match how they feel? Yeah. Mm. And how often is the first thing someone will say if you say, you know, so-and-so is pregnant, do they know if they're having a boy or a girl? Mm-hmm. Oh, every time. Obviously, Kate and I knew that we were doing this interview with you and having this conversation. So we've been talking about different thoughts and feelings that we've been having and we do live in such a gendered world and it is just so natural in us to gender people and to assume their gender identity and I think that's the biggest thing that we need to retrain or relearn is not to assume anything about anyone not just their gender but anything 100%. I guess the third piece when we talk about this person, so they've got their their pipes, they've got the way they connect to their their idea of what gender is, what it feels like for them. And then you've got the way that the person might dress, right? So this is the expression, right? So someone might internally feel really feminine, might feel like a woman, but might still dress in a really masculine way, Mm -hmm. right? So this is where we talk about assumption. So we might see someone and because they're wearing you know, sort of culturally stereotypical masculine or male clothing, we might assume, oh, that they're a man, right? We don't actually know. So one of the conversations that we have all the time with my children who are five that we have had really consistently from the start um, is we talk about assumptions. So they know what an assumption is. And anytime someone to them or they, or even us make an assumption, we go, hold on a minute. I think that was an assumption. I, I looked at this and this, which made me think this and this oh, I don't actually know if that's true. Because assumptions aren't just about gender, right? It's about culture. It's about language. It's about privilege. And for a lot of good reasons, right? Like we make an assumption, a snap judgment. It's really like, I'm signing at you because I can't think of the word, an evolutionary process to be able to make a split decision around, is this person safe for me? Do I relate to them? Do I understand them, right? So it's one of the ways that we understand our space and ourselves in reference to other people. And in a lot of ways, that's really helpful. We might be somewhere and feel really uncomfortable and then see someone who feels like a safe person and go, oh, hey, can you help me with blah, 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 right? That's a really great way to make an assumption. So I think it's important to note assumptions aren't generally speaking all bad, but what they can do in terms of gender and in terms of all these other, I guess, labeling ways that we are in the world is that they can take away a person's ability to then give you that information and to really be able to be seen for who they are. The assumptions, I'm glad you touched on that. It's really big. We want to sort of move into a little bit more about language and approachability and appropriateness. But since you've just made that example of the way that you speak to your children about assumptions. I'd love you to share a little bit more about how you do teach and raise your children a little bit more genderless and like what is the narrative that you have with them? Because I was just saying to Kate before, like even as someone that does feel to be quite open-minded and aware of the way that I speak to my children and that I don't want to put too much influence on them and all of those sorts of things, naturally boy and girl just comes out of my mouth all the time. So I'd love your guidance on what your narrative is with them. How beautiful to be in a position as a parent, as a partner, as a person in the world where you just want to learn, right? And you want to go, hold on, am I, are the things that I'm saying and doing, does it really align with the things I want to be saying and doing? Or is it, where does it come from? In the processor journey of 
you know, working out what you want this to look like for your family. I think it's really important to remember, like, you're not always going to get it right. I don't even think there is a right. I think it's about trying to figure out what works for you and your family and what feels good for you and what aligns with your values and the way that I guess you want your young people to be going out and about into the world. And one of the really strong values that my partner and I have is that we want to raise little people who have really amazing critical thinking skills, who are able to look at a situation and have a set of questions that they bring into it. And so this real sense of curiosity. And so I think that in order for us to sort of embed that into them and how they are in the world. We try to embed that into our parenting. And so we try to approach any conversation with this sense of curiosity and seeing where the kids are at, the way that you talk to a two-year-old is different to a five-year-old, different to a seven-year-old, 15, et cetera, and really looking at where the kids are at and finding out you know, maybe what it is that they're searching for within a question or within a situation and also what you are searching for, right? So in the example you gave, how do we talk about gender or talk in certain ways with our kids? I think the starting point would be just to notice on a daily basis, like over a week, what you say, right? Anytime my child does something, do I say, oh, good girl. Oh, that's my girl. Come here, darling. You're such a sweet girl, right? That's how many times in a day are we saying that, right? And it's just automatic. I remember when I don't, one of my kids was like, I don't know, like six months old or something. And I said something like, oh, what a little princess. And I was like, oh my God, where did this come from? What? It was a good thought and a good intention on your behalf. But hundred percent. Yeah. Did you go into having your children, like had you and your partner spoken a lot about the way that you approached your parenting or is this something that's really evolved as you've kind of got further into your parenting journey? both. So being a queer couple who had to be quite intentional and planned in making a family meant we had a lot of time (laughs) to really look into and talk about all of these things and having a partner who is non-binary and gender really impacting their experience of the world and everything around them. We wanted to be, I guess, on the same page and we actually weren't on the same page initially. And still there's things that come up and we have different ideas about it and it's a work in progress and it's hard. (laughs) So like I really wanted to raise the kids just fully gender expansive and use they, them pronouns so that you know, I wasn't putting any of my stuff or my ideas or thoughts onto them, offer them any clothing, think about the way that I praise them or the way that I refer to the work that they do, the qualities that they have, right? So even when we talk about our kids and the qualities they have, they're often quite gendered. Mm. And so I was like, yes, let's just like, you know, pull it all apart. Let's just start, you know, like give them just an open blank canvas. And my partner was like, Matt, we live in regional Victoria (laughs) and it's going to be too hard. It's going to be a constant battle, not only for us, but for them. And so we had to get to a point in the middle that felt okay for us, which was, we called them boy or girl based on the sex that they were assigned. Um, With the caveat, I would say, oh, well, at the moment we've got a boy and a girl, (laughs) but with the kids, not using that language with them if that makes sense. So we would not use that gendered imprinting onto them. But instead, if someone asked us, we'd say, oh, well, you know, we've got this at the moment, but they're not really big enough to know what any of that means. And it's going to be up to them, you know, so sort of putting a bit of context around it. And we've just offered just everything. So it would be like, do you want to wear a dress today or do you want leggings? Right. So regardless of if you have a penis or don't have a penis. So no influencing, um, just letting them make the decision. Yeah, just letting them make that choice and not showing preference. Because even if we don't mean to, we often show preference. I was just going to say, yeah, often it comes out as default. And I have much like you, something come out of my mouth and then been like, that's not what I believe or feel like that's just come out as 
a bit like autopilot. Little girls shouldn't do this. Like, <laughs> be a good girl, be a good boy, do this yeah. thing. The interesting point that you made or, you know, that your partner even made you aware of is the environment that you live in and how that's going to fit and feel for your for yourselves and your children choosing a specific way to raise your kids and I suppose the effects or challenges that you'll have if you're kind of going against the grain, you know, what about when they're in a school environment and everyone's called a girl and a boy and in lots of schools there's still gendered toilets and all of those sort of things, yet in your home you're raising them in a different way. How does that play out? You know, I think anyone who chooses to parent in a way that is sort of non-mainstream, right? So like not the standard assumption of parenting, any sort of like conscious parenting, I suppose, you're going to have that disconnect probably at the playground, um, at the school. You're going to have it when you go on holidays and stay at a hotel, you know, it's going to be everywhere. And you know, we've only had children for five years. And in that amount of time, like the amount of, I guess, interactions that have just felt like, wow, this really is like, this is, we do live in a bubble. Wow. Mm. Oh my goodness. You know, for the most part until recently, the kids have been mostly too young to really process or understand or take it on, but it's been really fascinating. I had a lot of fear and anxiety about what that would look like for our children, right? You know, even just having queer parents, what does that mean in an area that while quite beautiful with beautiful intentions, doesn't have a lot of families that look like ours and knowing that it is going to feel for them, they're going to feel it. And what, what are they going to then take on from that? And I think it's going to look different for each family, but I think having a lot of awareness of what comes up and when it comes up and getting support, not just for your kids, but for you. So as the parent, as a queer person myself, and then having children who might be perceived as, you know, gender non-binary or gender queer or whatever, there's stuff that comes up for me for that, right? Finding a space to make sure that I have whatever's happening for me listened to so that I then don't put it onto my kids, right? I would say that's the biggest thing because I can't parent from the place I want to parent if I've got too much stuff sitting here in front of me, right? So blocking my heart from their heart, it's too hard to get to them. So I'd say that's the first thing. And I mean, I think also having really honest conversations of saying, you're right, like that is really different to what we do. Like we have conversations in our family and they'll go, well, how come so-and-so does this? And we said, oh, that's because that's what their family does. And that's okay. It's just different to ours. What does our family typically think about this? What do we like to do in this situation? Or Mm -hmm. say, does that match how we feel? You know, and like not telling them it doesn't match or it's not this or it's not that, but then saying, well, we really like it when everyone's included. Does that seem like a time that everyone was included and letting them work through it in that way and being able to listen, right? Being able to not put my own stuff on them, which is hard. And sometimes I still do, right? I want to jump in and go, no, they shouldn't have <sighs> all the time. Like my, if my oldest in particular will come home from school and will say something that's happened that she's upset about. And the first thing I want to do is fix it. And I constantly have to stop myself from doing that and just try and listen because she doesn't really want me to fix it. She just wants me to listen. It's really tricky. Oh, it's so tricky. Yeah. And that's the thing is that goes back to we can't also really listen if we've got too much of our own stuff coming up. Yeah, so having the conversation in a really objective way, sorting out our own stuff in the best way that we can. You know, like especially single parents, you're going to be probably at capacity if you aren't well-resourced and you aren't well-networked. These things are going to be 10 times harder than someone who's got a partner who has family who looks after children, you know, all these things that I have built in around me that make my life so much more privileged and so much more able for me to move with ease in these spaces. You know, I think it's it's okay if sometimes it's too hard. It's okay if having the conversation, you actually don't have capacity for it, or it comes out in a way that you don't want it to, or it looks like something different. I don't think you have to get it right all the time. I think when we talk about gender, 
a lot of people are so worried, right? We don't want to mess up our kids. That's the last thing we want to do. We just want to give them the best that we can within the capacity that we have. And that's so different for each person. But like also messing up is actually such a crucial, incredible part of parenting, right? So if you had a conversation with your kid and they asked you some question about gender and you actually couldn't answer them, what a powerful opportunity to say, you know what? I actually have the same question. I don't know. Or I'm going to find out. Because that's my job as an adult is to find out, I'm going to get that information for you. And then you can take the time, do what you need to do, process it, prepare yourself for how you want to talk about it. And then come back and say, hey, do you remember when we were talking the other day and you asked me about blah, blah, blah? Well, I actually, I told you I was going to find out and I did. Can we talk about it? They might not want to. What conversation, you know? And then just let it go. That's okay. That response works well for questions that you don't know the answer to, but also just the million questions that you get thrown at by my eldest child is three and a half, almost four. And it's very much the why era. Why? Why? But why? But why? But why? But why? And it sometimes just gets to a point where I'm just like, I actually just don't even know. I don't even know how to respond to you. I can't keep answering why. So it's um, perhaps a good response when you don't know the answer to something, but also just when you're sick of being asked why. Out of interest, as your children are five now, how do they feel about gender identity? Do they have... (laughs) Do they want to lead to one or the other or are they curious? Do they express a gender that they feel more of or where are they at with that? Oh, it's such a big question. So (laughs) we have two little people, so they're twins, and they both have told us, I feel this or this. But what does that mean? Because we've not taught them that to be a girl means this or that to be a boy means this, or that to be non-binary means this. We've not taught them those things, right? We're really intentional with, we'll see someone out on the street and we won't go, oh, that man's working on the whatever. We'll say the worker over there, right? So we, in all of our language, we're really gender neutral. We read a book. We don't use the pronouns in the book. We mix them up. And so now we have two people who are five and they are not always in our little bubble at home. And they've had three-year-old kinder and now four-year-old kinder and they're going to go to prep next year and they're with other people whose kids do have really strong ideas of what gender is for them and for their family and then my kids are observing that and then coming home and talking about it and playing about it and working out well do I resonate with what that means and so at the moment one of my twins she has identified as a girl for about a year quite strongly in a quite femme, like a quite feminine presentation as well, which has been really fascinating for my partner and I both. We were like, our initial reaction was like, oh, oh God, like, oh, because we're like, you can be a girl, but you don't have to do these things. You don't have to dress up like a princess every day. That's right. Exactly. (laughs) And then for me to go, okay, well, what was my experience? What did people expect from me? Right. I was always a tomboy and I always felt like I needed to be prettier. I needed to be girlier. I needed to sit with my legs closed or I needed to, you know, do all these like, you know, like I felt a lot of pressure on me to be a girl in a certain way. And so then I see my daughter coming home to me saying, I'm a girl and girls do these things, all these things that as a girl, I was like, no, I'm none of these things. Right. So like it brought up a lot of stuff for me. And then I have had to work really hard at coming to a place of going, well, actually you can be really feminine and you can be all of these things. And that's also really okay. And then I guess the thing that's been happening recently, she's going through, um, you know, as kids go through sort of stages of autonomy and individuation, but then realignment with attachment figures, what they'll want to do is they do lots of mimicking. So there's different ways that kids will 
create attachment with their main adults or their group of adults. And one of them is through copying. So she often wants to dress how I'm dressing, or if I'm wearing red lippy, she wants to wear red lippy. Or if I have a thing, she's like, oh, can I have that when I'm bigger? And there's a, there's a real component there of, I don't think for her it's about, I don't think she wants to wear red lipstick, right? Because that's what girls do. I think she wants to do it because that's what mom does. And there's a real connection and she'll be like, let's wear these same colors. You know, there's a real attachment alignment piece there. So I think there's lots of layers to it, right? So she's expressing herself, but for her, those things aren't about gender. That's about connection. Just they pick up everything. Nothing gets past them. Mm, I appreciate you sharing that. And I think it's made a really nice point for people that struggle with kids being too girly or too boy-like. I think there's this kind of thing of like people feeling like it's not okay as well. You know, like if you are trying to raise them to be more genderless and 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 not influence them too much, yet they still want to dress up like a princess every day, you, you know, you don't want to have the opposite effect and sort of make them feel shamed or something like they can't. Yeah, it's a really tricky space and it's, you know, a spot that we're still navigating, right? Like we're still trying to work out what does that mean and where do we put in certain limits around things and like we're actively checking in with our friends who raise their their children similarly going okay well what's the core of it what do we want from the out of clothing you know can I ask a, a random question what do your kids call you and your partner oh good question so they call me mama hmm. and they call my partner Rinny so parent p-a-r-e-n Rin so Rin as in the middle part of parent so just a gender neutral. So Ren or Rinny is the word that they use for their parenting term. Did you guys come up well, with that? Or? Ash came up. Well, Ash, I think Ash is a bit of a research nerd and spent a lot of time trying to work out what they felt connected to. Because a lot of the words that we found that exist out there for queer families and non-binary parents and stuff, we just were like, well, oh, that's not, that doesn't, that doesn't work for us. So when they brought that up. They're like, no, that feels really good. And it's funny because for the first three years, the kids didn't call my partner Rinny. They called them by their name. I was like, and then we were like, what if they're never going to, like, even though we're actively saying, oh, give Rinny this. Give, and I had like a sign that we used for their parent name, right? But they just, because they heard, you know, everyone using their name more commonly than they heard anyone calling in the parent name. Because people at the park would say, oh, go give your mama this thing, right? They look at me and they assume I'm a mom right? Grandparents would call me a mama, you know, like whoever is around us, right? So they were only hearing really Rinny from a select few people. And I think that they were hearing Ash, their first name, from heaps more people. Um, but now Rinny's tried and true. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> I like that. That's nice. Let's take a breather for a minute to talk about a vital part of the health and safety of our children. Now, we have spoken about help at hand before, but it really is so important to be educated when it comes to the health and safety of our kids. Yeah, we're very happy to be sharing this information with you because Help at Hand does provide life-saving education for your little humans and is an amazing resource for all parents and carers. Help at Hand has created a place to educate, inform and help direct you to the resources and right professionals if and when the need arises. So no more confusion and worry. The best part is you can now jump onto their website and get instant access to an online course. So good. You can do it like anywhere, anytime, online, on your own, with your partner, with your grandparents, like amazing resource. The 10-module course will unlock the knowledge and skills 
in you to ensure you know what to do in any accident, injury, illness or emergency. But the best part, it really empowers you to feel confident and calm in an emergency situation and let you trust your gut instincts, which we all need a bit more of that empowerment. So to find out more and book yourselves in today, head to www.helpathandeducation.com.au. Now we all know where to go for the right support. Let's get back to the episode. So let's talk a little bit more about language and approachability to gender, but even disabilities or differences. Language is such a powerful tool in the way that it makes people feel. So what's your guidance on how we use it? Language is evolving. And the terms that I use now are probably maybe, like I was saying, I'm a bit of an old queer now, maybe the young kids, there's probably new terms and things evolving within the community that I'm disconnected from. I don't feel comfortable speaking to the experience of younger people in the queer community because it's probably really different to you know what I had or how I feel. So I think if we have that lens of going, okay, well, language evolves and the way that I feel about something is probably different than the way you two feel about something and that that's okay. And that my relationship to certain words or certain concepts or ideas are really impacted by my experience. I think if we know going into any situation that if we know that we don't know, if that makes sense, we don't actually know what's happening for this person. We don't know what they're coming to us with. We don't know what their morning has been like, but what we can know is that their relationship to these sort of hot topic terms or labels of identity are going to be much more complex than we can understand unless they tell us. So asking questions. Asking questions and just being really curious. And a lot of times sort of, you still see it happening some, but like in disability sector. So, you know, I work in the deaf and deafblind community and there's been this history of expecting that people who are deafblind will teach you and they'll run trainings and they'll, you know, do everything they can to make you feel comfortable. And this real sort of responsibility of teaching falls onto the shoulders of the people with the lived experience, which it's incredibly important to hear and see and understand and give people a platform to express their lived experience, right? But the expectation of us, you know, who don't have that same experience to then expect them to teach us, that's kind of yuck. That's not good. We need to sort of shift away from that. And so I think it's really okay to maybe you're having an interaction and there's a situation or a word that comes up, or maybe you find yourself stumbling over something because you just don't know how to talk about it saying, oh, I actually, I feel really uncomfortable right now. And that's about me. I don't actually know what to say because I don't know about this, this, or this. So thank you for being really patient. Can you just tell me what I need to know right now so that I can, we can just keep talking if that's appropriate. When we leave, I'm going to go home and I'm going to read about it, or I'm going to chat with so-and-so, or I'm going to do whatever this thing is because that's on me to learn. It's not on you to teach me. Hmm. People just have so much fear, like, you know, of saying the wrong thing, of doing the wrong thing. And for me personally, I am curious and willing to learn and educate myself to make people feel comfortable. And becoming a parent is like a big driver for me (laughs) wanting to push myself further in that sort of direction because I want to make my kids feel empowered and loved, but I want to raise them to do the same. But I just want, you know, my family, my children, my community to feel comfortable in who they are and what they choose and what they do, no matter their differences. When we live in a world of like social media and ways that things move in online spaces, I think that also creates a lot of fear for us around, you know, someone being cancelled or like, you know, being perceived in a different way or, you know, there's an extra layer because of the time and the place that we live in. Mm -hmm. 
Adrian, you touched on aware parenting a little bit before, but for anyone listening who might not know exactly what aware parenting is, can you tell us? So I'm an aware parenting instructor and um, aware parenting, the three tenets are that it's attachment style parenting. So we offer connection with our children in ways that will support and continue attachment with them, right? Because we know secure attachment, there's so much research that shows secure attachment is what creates a really well-rounded, connected young person and then adult in the world. Um, and it also uses non-putative discipline. So no punishments, no rewards. Um, and we use really playful discipline in our home. So this looks different for every family, but there's a real playful approach in aware parenting. They use what's called attachment play. So that's good for discipline, but also for the attachment connection. And then the third component is that babies and children are able to heal from stress and trauma. And so that by parenting them in this particular way, we can support them to continue to thrive and grow and not hold on to, to stressful traumatic things that happen to them and then just continue moving, right? So it's, it's going to have less of an impact on their development, on their peer relationships, their education, all these, you know, all these things that are affected by when a young person experiences stress or trauma. If we can support them to move that and not keep it in their body, it's going to look like a very, very different life for them. And the thing that really drew me in was attachment play because I just think it's so powerful. I, that's... What my children invited me to do was to start doing some of our own family healing through play. And I realized, ooh, I can't, I can't support us to do any healing because I have so much of my own healing to do. And there's a real beautiful part of aware parenting that supports parents to look at the way that they were raised and what comes up for them now as parents, what feels challenging for us as parents now has nothing to do with our children, right? Our children's not being a pain. They're not being challenging. They're not pushing our buttons. They're not doing any of those things. They're just being kids and we're just having our own trauma reaction, right? So those parts of us that are wounded from childhood that we might not have a narrative memory of, but we have a felt an embodied memory of that comes up for us as feeling annoyed with our children. Aware parenting supports us to acknowledge that and then find ways to start to heal that so that we can then show up differently for our children. It's really interesting, like specifically how to raise them without punishment and reward, because again, it's something that just like comes naturally to us because of our history. So how do you do that? (laughs) But still have boundaries because I think boundaries, it can be quite important. Oh my God, we could do a whole chat just about this. So we are in relationship with our children, right? We are also their place of safety, right? So if we come to every interaction with them as a place of safety, but also their space for learning and their space for exploring and sharing and having every gamut of everything, right? That sits with us. You know, it's, when they're little, it grows as they get bigger, their networks grow. But if we look at what a child does, what children do, what they need, and if we look at a child's behavior as being simply a result of a feeling that they're having. So children are naturally cooperative, right? So when we, in our family, we talk about being balanced or being out of balance. And this is a language that our kids use as well. They might say, oh, I'm too out of balance. I can't go to that thing right now. I won't be able to cope, right? And so if we look at these behaviors, which, you know, are sort of socially termed as like challenging or tantrums or there's all different language that aware parenting uses, but these things that are really hard, right? For us as parents, if we were parented, the imprint that we bring with us into the situation is that we were sent to our room or, you know, we were smacked or we were whatever these things were. We were, you know, our parents gave us the silent treatment until we did the thing they wanted us to do. And if that's the only thing we've ever known, it can feel really confronting 
to think about that it could be done really differently and to think that the process of learning and growing as a child into adulthood could be done sort of in relationship and in safety. And so if we think about we're the safe person and we don't want to be a place where the kid ever feels in trouble. One time someone said to my kid, oh, bet you get in trouble for that. And my daughter looked at me and said, what does trouble mean? No concept of it because it's not what we have in our house. When the child has a big behavior, we go, well, what's happening for them? Are they thinking something? Are they feeling something? Do they have some stress or trauma in their body that they need to move? Like what's happening to create this behavior? And there's so much beautiful space for limits. So we use loving limits instead of boundaries. So we would look at, you know, what's happening for this person. Are they, are they hitting the wall or they're throwing a thing? That's not safe. I'm not actually willing for you to do that thing. Sweetheart, I see that you're upset. I'm going to have my arms here with you, honey, because I'm not willing for you to throw that. You're not in trouble. But what I see is that you're having a really hard time and it's, you're not able, you're not in the part of your brain that can make the choice to not do that, right? You're like way too, you're way too out of balance to be able to make those choices. So my role as the person who's in balance, who's mirroring to them how to come back into balance and how to move through these really big feelings, you know, I guess it's not like, oh, you're in trouble that you've done this and now this thing is happening. It's instead going, oh, darling, that's, are you feeling really out of balance? Like, that's not something you would typically do. You must be really frustrated. Did this thing happen? I'm right here for you. I see that you're having a hard time. Mm. And also you've mentioned about the power of play with children too and communication through play. And so sort of on the opposite side, what's the power of that, the communication and and raising children through play? In discipline through play as well. So like, for example, we, I was was thinking of a time I was with a friend and we were at a park and my kids didn't want to leave but we needed to go. It was getting late. It was cold. We hadn't had food. And the kids were like, it was one of those situations, you know, as a parent, you assess and you're like, Ooh, this could go (laughs) one or two ways. Like I need to brace myself. Like what's about to come. I know for me that when I have enough spaciousness to show up for them with play, to respond to them with play, that the response from them and the buy-in from them is going to be about 100% better than when I don't have capacity. And I'm like, get in the car, please. You know, right? Like they don't the path that I go to that, do they? No. no. Who would? What if your partner spoke to you that way? Your best friend, you'd be like, I'm sorry, don't talk, don't talk to me that way. So in this particular situation, I was like, oh God, I'm so tired. But I was like, I know if I can muster this five minutes of play, it's going to be a five minute play to the car versus a half an hour of me sitting and putting in limits and holding feelings and, you know, them refusing to get in and crying outside of the car, right? Which, you know, sometimes I, there are really amazing times when I get excited. I'm like, I'm going to put a limit in here and they're going to cry and cry and they're going to move this anger that they have. And that's going to mean that the next few days are going to be easy, smooth sailing, right? So I I welcome a rage. I welcome a big, you know, but when I don't have space for that, when I can't listen to anger, when I can't listen to whatever big feelings my kids have, if I can muster up five minutes of connection, right? How much more likely if you have, I don't know, a partner or a friend or a boss, right? And you feel a bit of buy-in, you feel connection and respect and excitement and fondness towards this person. And they ask you to do a thing that's kind of annoying, right? but you're feeling really connected and good with that, you'd be like, oh, of course, honey, I got you, right? If you're like, you've had enough of them, right? And you feel totally disconnected. They haven't listened to you. They haven't respected you. They like used a really harsh tone with you. You felt really, you know, dismissed or whatever these things are. And then they ask you to do that annoying thing. Likely you're going to want to give them a different response, right? So if we view that same thing with our children, right? They're much less likely to do what we ask them to do. And when a child is uncooperative, that's because they're probably feeling 
disconnected. That's one of the main, it could be that they're feeling disconnected um, or that they have some big stress and trauma that hasn't been healed. Right. So I turned this into, I ran past them and I was like, you'll never catch me. And then I started running and then they were chasing me, but I didn't go to the car. Right. We chased and ran around the field and then I hid and then they hid and then we chased. And then I was like, I'm going to the car. You'll never get me in the car. And they're like, I'm going to get in the car first. And it turned into this like, you know, three to five minute game. I was puffed at the end of it, but we were in the car, right? And no one was upset. And then they felt connected and we laughed, right? And then I felt better as well because then it felt good, right? Like it felt good for me to be able to connect with that way. But when we can come in with lots of play um, for discipline and also just for connection or for helping them move stress and trauma, the connection we have with our children, it's night and day difference when I can show up for my kids with play. It is the best thing that I've learned <laughs> in my parenting career so far yes. <laughs> and originally learned from the wonderful Lael Stone, who we've got to thank, who put us in contact with you. When I tried that for that, I mean, obviously, naturally, you try, you play with your kids because they they live in a playful world and they don't have the stresses and, and time restraints and things that we're living by. But when someone like put it to me like that, like a way of communicating with them and connecting with them and getting them to do the things that you need them to do within a time frame that you need to do. I just could not believe the difference. It's literally like it's so simple. <laughs> but it's also like it's such not a part of like I feel like we are socialized out of play. Big kids don't do this. Stop being silly. Be serious. That's too blah blah blah, you know? And a lot of people, especially based on how they were played with as children, can find different types of play really challenging. So if there was a situation and it was a situation that you were not ever allowed to speak back or you weren't allowed, you know, in your family of origin to do this specific thing. And the last thing you could ever imagine doing is playing with your child as a response to that. That's probably because the last thing your parents would have ever done with you is play in that situation. So I think it's like the gap between what we can theoretically see and what we might want to do can be really different from our experience and our imprint that we bring with us into parenting. So I think it, it can sound easy to go, oh, just play with your kids. It'll be great. But it's, it's not that simple. It's literally like you've got to muster up the energy. Like if it's the end of the day and it's you're trying to get to them to go to bed and you're literally like, I'm going to go to bed if you're not going to go. I'd like, I just want to yell at you because I'm so done with the day. So done. But let yeah. me just take a minute and be creative and think of a fucking way to make this fun and then you turn it into a game and then before you know it, like, they're into bed. It doesn't always work. It's not a 100% strike rate, but it's pretty close. It's pretty. It's the best thing that I've learned for sure. It works for my two oldest kids because they just want to both, like, be the first one to get into bed if I say let's see who can get there the quickest and then if I get there and beat them, they don't like that, so they, they run pretty fast. That's so funny. We um having a routine at nighttime that incorporates play mm-hmm. is so powerful. And in fact, in our family, like every night there is a nighttime play. Usually around dinner time, we start to talk, oh, we're going to do around our nighttime play. And we don't use it as a reward or a bribe to go, oh, well, once you've done this, this, and this, we can play. But instead we go, I'm so excited. Once we finish brushing our teeth, I cannot wait to play blah, blah, blah. Right? So I'm not even saying, let's go brush your teeth. Come on, brush your teeth now. But instead I'm walking towards the bathroom and I'm down with them and I'm talking to them like this and they're following me. And then we're in the bathroom like, oh, here's our toothbrushes. I'll be this character. You be, right? And so it's like just the space that it creates for us to move, move through these otherwise challenging or hard moments and do it with connection, right? And do it really fun. It's so different. 
like even if it's three minutes, we'll still do a play. Like if we're like, guys, it's really late. This, this, and this was really challenging tonight and we didn't really nail it. (laughs) So we can have three minutes of play, Mm -hmm. right? Or like the other night, one of the kids was really tired and the other one, she had really big feelings. We had a hard, I had, I had a hard day because I was having a hard time with her feelings <laughs> and she was having a hard time with her feelings because I wasn't able to listen to them. Right. And so bedtime came and I was like, right, she's not going to sleep tonight if I don't give her a space to have a rage. And so we could have played for three minutes because what's three minutes. Right. But instead I said, sweetheart, it's actually really late. I'm not willing for us to have a play tonight. Oh my God. She was devastated and she screamed and cried. And she was like, this is so unfair. I need a nighttime play. My body needs movement. I need to get this out of me. You know, all the language we use to reflect like (laughs) the importance of play. Right. And I'm like, I really hear you, sweetheart. It's so important, but I'm not willing for that tonight. And it gave her an opportunity to move these big feelings she'd been carrying all day that for whatever reason, I wasn't able to show up for her and she wasn't able to lean into them until that moment. And then after she moved though, she was like, let's read a book now. And then crawled into bed and we read a book. That exact same thing happened with my oldest daughter last night. She had like (laughs) a full, a full moment. I want to say moment. It probably went on for like an hour and she was so beside herself, so upset. And she just kept saying she was so tired. And I just thought, I'm just going to let her be because, you know, that's what you need to do. And by the time she went to bed, she was completely different. She was so calm, so much happier, happy to get into bed and woke up this morning like a different person. I mean, have you ever like had a big cry and then had the best sleep of your life and then been like, oh my God, I feel so much better after that. She like bounced in this morning. She was like bouncing down the hallway. I'm like, whoa, you're very different this morning. But yeah. How powerful because when we, when the emotions sit in our body, right, it literally weighs us down. Like we are, we, we don't have the same pep in our step. We don't want to bounce down the hallway because we feel heavy. We feel, you know, unable to be ourselves, right? So to, to really move and to shake and to cry and to, you know, like it can feel confronting as a parent to see a child, not that she was doing this, but to see a kid like stomping their legs or hitting their fists or flailing around. That's from a parenting perspective. That is so good. She was doing a bit of that. Get get it out. Good. And like the more of that there is, it's like they're going to be so much more move back into a place of balance after that. It's so powerful. And then seeing that you go, oh, right. Right. It actually does. It does make sense. It does work. (laughs) Now, Adrian, we don't want to keep you too much longer. We want to allow you to get on with your day. But I just wanted to ask you about you and your generosity and dedication to a really inclusive environment and what this means to you nowadays and and also just to community. I guess it's always felt really important, but it sort of leveled up as I became a parent. I went, all right, it's not just, you know, me and my, I'm using air quotes, hardened shell. I've like, you know, I'm quite resilient and I can like manage these things and I can, you know, navigate situations. But now it's these beautiful children who like, I don't want them to have to go through the same things that I went through. I don't want them to, you know, and that's not just personal experience, right? Like I don't want them to live in a world that has X, Y, and Z happening. It's still going to happen, but what can I actively do to raise them to be really, you know, like agents of change essentially, and to, to be able to show up in that space as protected and as confident in themselves as possible, but also to hopefully see the world through a lens that looks at similar things to what I look at. So, you know, how do we make sure that 
people are included. You know, when we look at, I guess, accessibility and accommodation, it's a hot topic to be like, well, how do we have accessible this? And how do we accommodate that? And it's like, well, it's actually, there's a series of steps that need to be taken from start to finish, right? When you build a building or when you create a workshop or when you do a video online, right? And if you skip a step because you don't think about it, what you're doing, that's where the accessibility falls out, right? So if we know what all the steps are to make something accessible, So for example, at my other job that I have, when we make a resource, we do something in a plain English Word document and we make it so that it can be inverse colors so they can swap the colors around. We also then make a video in Auslan that is mirrors the plain language, right? And also breaks down more complex terms. It's also then captioned and then it's voiced over. And then we provide a transcript for one document. That's the steps to make sure that anyone, whether they're accessing with a braille note, whether they're watching, you know, with limited vision, you know, maybe they've got a pinhole of vision and they can watch the video. Maybe they can, you know, hear the voice, whatever, however they access the content, they're going to be able to do it, right? So if we can not view accommodation and accessibility as extra, but instead viewing that the world that we live in has created spaces that intentionally have left people out and have left people out, you know, for reasons that are really yuck, that feel really ick. And it's about, you know, like, I really think it's about, you know, capitalism and colonization and, you know, keeping keeping certain, you know, people and communities in positions of powerlessness or in positions where they don't have access to things. And if we can really pick apart what those where that came from and what it looks like. Um, and we can actively be working against that. Like, I mean, I just think, yeah, I think we still have a responsibility to make sure that, especially as a person, you know, I'm white and I'm educated and I speak English and, you know, I've just got so much privilege that I feel a personal responsibility to use that privilege as a platform to do what I can, because there's a lot of people who cannot or who do not have, you know, it's not safe for them to do that or, you know, whatever that looks like. So, I think I just, yeah, I just want to just want to see a world where more people are, you know, they feel connected and they feel seen and they, you know, they feel safe to be in the world. Mm. We need more people in the world. Yeah, like, like you. you in the world. <laughs> You're amazing. You. Really kind. Thank you so much for your time. You, you've been oh, so generous you with me. all your wisdom and knowledge and um, point of view on the world and it's been graciously accepted. We really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you so much, Adrian. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Have a great rest of your day. That's it for today. Make sure you head to incommonprojects.com.au for the show notes. Hit subscribe on your podcast app and follow us on Instagram at Talking In Common. Or you can check out our Facebook page, which is also Talking In Common. Have a lovely day and as always, thanks for listening.